We read this morning from Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, Do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the goods of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The opening line of Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, goes like this. 
whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Now, I have long maintained that for most all of us in our own minds and in our imagination, the way we see the world, we are the hero of our own story, or at least the main character. We see ourselves and imagine ourselves to be the hero in our own story. And this is why superhero movies are so popular, because you know, nobody is watching a superhero movie and identifying themselves with some guy in the background who is in fear for his life and running away from the danger. We like to imagine ourselves as the hero. Every little kid ever imagines themselves to be the hero. In my childhood, that meant the Lone Ranger, Robin Hood, Luke Skywalker, Gandalf or Aragorn, or my grandfather during World War II was who I imagined myself to be as I was playing and pretending. And many of us have a tendency to read the Bible in that same manner and imagine ourselves to be the hero. When we read a story in the biblical account, uh, we put ourselves in the place of the hero. And it begins when we're kids, right? We hear the Bible stories and, and we imagine ourselves to be Noah or Moses or David or Elijah, Right? We, we picture ourselves and pretend to be Moses calling down plagues on the bad guys in Egypt or we're, we think that we're David uh, taking down a giant with our slingshot. For the women, maybe you imagine yourselves to be Esther or Deborah or Jael. The point is, I don't think that we lose that when we become adults. I think we continue to, to read the Bible and imagine ourselves as the hero. It becomes a little more subtle, but we still, in our minds, we're David, or we're Daniel, or Paul, or in this case, Joseph. None of us, I think, would be safe to say, have read uh, this account that we've been working through in Genesis and imagined ourselves to be Reuben, Joseph's perverted and bumbling oldest brother. None of us have imagined ourselves to be Simeon, the cruel and merciless brother. We want to identify ourselves with Joseph, the hero of the story. And so we do this even as adults. And and so what happens is, is that you hear sermons about slaying the giants in your life because you're David. Or you uh, read a book about how to make the sun stand still by you know, unlocking your potential because you're Joshua or Moses or something like that. Or you might hear a sermon about how to be like Joseph and forgive those who have wronged you. It's a good lesson to forgive those who have wronged you, but it's not the point of this text. Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, it says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures are about Jesus. The Bible is his story. It's about God. It's about God creating all things, God sustaining all things, God redeeming a people for himself. 
by Christ, reconciling all things to himself in him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20. So when we look at the story of Joseph, particularly this chapter here at Genesis 45, we can learn about forgiveness and reconciliation, but that has to begin with the forgiveness and reconciliation that we have experienced in Christ, and then it can extend out to and be applied to our life of holiness and imitation of him. But we must begin not by seeing ourselves as Joseph, but rather by seeing Christ in the story of Joseph. So how do we do that? Well, Charles Spurgeon once told the story of a young preacher who asked an older minister what he had thought of the young man's sermon. And the older man said that he didn't like it because there was no Christ in it. And the young preacher responded and said, well, that's because Christ wasn't in my text. To which the older minister responded, oh, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, that is, Christ. My dear brother, your business is when you go to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then to preach a sermon running along the road to the great metropolis, Christ. And Spurgeon comments and says, and I have never yet found a text that has not got a road to Christ in it. But if I do, I will go over hedge and ditch, but what I will get at him. So our job this morning in Genesis 45, or any text of Scripture, is to get at Christ. How do we find Christ in this text? Well, Obviously, the clear way to do this in many Old Testament passages is is when there is a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, concerning Christ, right? And so you think back to Genesis chapter 3 as God is pronouncing the curse in the garden. And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, we readily acknowledge this is a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, the Redeemer. It's a promise of the gospel. And there are many, many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that look forward to Christ. But another way that we can get at Christ in the Old Testament is to remind ourselves that He is God. He is God. So everywhere we see God in the Old Testament, we're seeing Christ at work. Here in Genesis 45, when Joseph says God sent him to Egypt, this is about Christ. There's a theological term that we use that's called inseparable operations. And what that simply means is that because God exists in perfect unity of essence and power, that every action of God is inseparably done by the fullness of God. So when God acts in creation or in calling Abraham or in sending Joseph to Egypt, it is God in his fullness, all three subsistences of the Trinity in perfect unity. So when Joseph says in verse 7, God sent me before you, that's a road to Christ. But another way to get at Christ from our text is by way of what the Apostle Paul calls shadow and substance. 
He says in Colossians 2.16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So he's talking about the ceremonial uh, laws in the Old Covenant. Right? The, the dietary laws, the festivals, the calendar of uh, feasts and special Sabbath days. And then he continues and says, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In other words, all that stuff in the Old Covenant was a shadow It's insubstantial, but it's giving us the shape and the outline of the reality, which is Christ. They're meant to point us to Jesus. You might hear the term typology or type and anti-type, and this is derived from the Greek word typos, which is used repeatedly in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews speaks of the priests under the Old Covenant. It says, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The word typos is translated there as pattern. The tabernacle is a pattern copied from the throne room in heaven, but it's a pattern that will later be used to construct the temple, and it points forward to the work of Christ in our atonement. A biblical type, according to Mitchell Chase in his book on typology, a biblical type is a person, place, institution, event, or thing in salvation history that anticipates shares correspondence with, escalates toward, and resolves in its antitype. Now, the word antitype sounds negative. It's anti-type, but it's really not. It just simply means against the type in the sense that it's at the opposite end of the timeline of redemptive history. The type is the shadow. The antitype is the substance. Joseph is the type. Jesus is the antitype. Or another way to say it is that Joseph foreshadowed Christ. The shadow comes first and gives us a hint of the reality of the substance of Christ who is casting the shadow. Now, why would God do this? Why would he sovereignly work out the details of not just the creation, but the lives of people and record them in history in order to show us a pattern that points at Jesus? Well, Arthur Pink in his commentary on Genesis says this, he says, the central purpose in the divine incarnation, the great outstanding objects in the life and death of the Lord Jesus were prefigured beforehand. And here's the key, and ought to have been rendered familiar to the minds of men. Among the means thus used of God was the history of different persons through whom the life and character of Christ were, to a remarkable degree, made manifest beforehand. Thus, Adam represented his headship, Abel his death, Noah his work in providing a refuge for his people, Melchizedek pointed to him as priest, Moses as prophet, David as king. But the fullest and most striking of all these typical personages was Joseph. So the types and shadows are there in redemptive history for the purpose of showing the centrality of Christ in all things and to prepare our minds and hearts to recognize and receive him. 
When the Pharisees ask for a sign from Jesus, what does he tell them? He tells them that they will be given the sign of Jonah, that Jonah was a sign. And then he calls himself the greater Jonah. In other words, Jonah's the type that escalates to the antitype, who is Christ. The story of Jonah should have prepared their hearts and minds to understand the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So this morning, as we examine chapter 45 here in Genesis, I want to note 12 ways in which Joseph, this story here in chapter 45, corresponds to the work of Christ in our redemption. The story of Joseph pictures for us the great deliverance that God has worked for us in Christ by sending his beloved son to secure our salvation and restore our fellowship with him. As we come to chapter 45, we've finally gotten to the climax of the story. We've been waiting for this, right? Joseph has been testing his brothers, trying to figure out if they've actually changed or not. And so here's the event that we've been waiting for. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Imagine the scene. Judah, at the end of chapter 44, has just offered himself as a substitute in Benjamin's place, showing a remarkable change of heart from his attitude when Joseph was a lad. And Joseph is overcome with emotion. Verse 1 tells us that he, he couldn't restrain himself We've seen him break down a couple of times previously, but in those cases, he, he left the room and composed himself and came back. But this time, he sends his servants and his attendants out and remains alone with his brothers, and then he breaks down weeping. It's obvious he's not been engaging in this deception and testing of his brothers just simply for the joy of inflicting revenge on them. That's not what's happened here. He's been restraining himself the whole time, and now he can't hold back any longer. Imagine this from the perspective of his brothers, this Egyptian prime minister who treated them so harshly on their first trip and then was so hospitable on their second trip, but, but now he's just claimed his right to keep their youngest brother Benjamin as a slave. And, and they know how their father is going to respond to that idea. Judah offers himself as a substitute, and this Egyptian governor sends his servants out of the room and then just begins weeping so loudly that the whole household can hear it. Then, no longer using an interpreter, which must have been a shock in and of itself, to realize, uh-oh, he understood everything we said in his presence. Without the interpreter, he now speaks in their own language and reveals himself to be the brother that they had sold into slavery 22 years earlier. And they're stunned to silence. In verse 3, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my, brother st my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. You think? The young man you had been so cruel to, you discussed murdering him outright. You threw him in a pit. You sold him into slavery. He's now become the most powerful politician in the most powerful nation on earth, completely at his mercy, and you know you don't deserve it. 
They're dismayed, panicked even. Here they stand face to face with the brother they had betrayed and sold as a slave. In Zechariah, the prophet speaking during the exile when Darius, the Persian, is king, tells of a future deliverance that will come when the Messiah appears. God, speaking through the prophet, says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Well, this is obviously a prophecy of the coming of Christ, the one whom they pierced. And when they are brought face to face with him, they are stunned into grief and mourning. Just as Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, no longer speaking through an interpreter, God himself came in the flesh, no longer speaking through the prophets, but revealing himself directly to mankind in the person of his son. And just as Joseph's brothers were stunned into silence by his revelation of himself, at Pentecost, Peter preaches Christ to the gathered crowd, and in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he confronts them with the one whom they had pierced. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I imagine Joseph's brothers were thinking something along those same lines. What shall we do? And What is Peter's response to the men of Jerusalem? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter told them to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ by repenting and believing in the promise of God. Well, how did Joseph tell his brothers to respond to his revelation? In verse 4, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. He's asking them uh, to believe his revelation of who he is. Believe it. It's me. Then he continues in verse 5 and says, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So now he's asking them to trust, to put away their grief and their guilt, to repent and believe. In verse 7, Joseph even goes on to say, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. Well, this corresponds to Acts 2 39 and the idea that the promise was to them and to their children. He is asking them to believe and to trust in the promise of God. So you can see the correspondence between Joseph and Christ in this passage, the prophecy of Zechariah, and the events of Pentecost. But verse 7 contains several more elements. Joseph declares it wasn't his brother's evil deed, but God who sent him to Egypt. And we know that God, the Father, sent Jesus into the world. 
Jesus says in John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. How similar is this to Joseph's statement? God sent Joseph ahead of them to Egypt that he might preserve them alive by feeding them. God sent Christ to earth to preserve us alive if we feed on him. And this work of saving is described in verse 7 as a great deliverance. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. This is what God accomplished for the house of Israel through Joseph. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that in response to the preaching of the gospel, we must, chapter 2, verse 1, give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. And then the question is asked, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a deliverance, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God, through Christ, worked a great deliverance for his people, just as he had before worked a great deliverance for his people through Joseph. Joseph is but a shadow pointing the way forward to the salvation that was to come through Jesus Christ. Once Joseph has revealed himself alive to his brothers, He tells them that God had raised him to a position of authority. He says in verse 8, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Well, when Christ had completed his work of redemption, had been raised from the dead, much as Joseph must have appeared to have come back to life as far as his brothers were concerned, It says in Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Correspondence with escalation. Joseph was the ruler over all the land of Egypt, but Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Joseph then sends his brothers to tell Jacob and the rest of the family what has happened. In verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. In the same way, Jesus continues there in Matthew 28 and sends his disciples saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, correspondence with escalation. Joseph sends his brothers to tell others his words, but he could not be with them as they went. But Christ, being very God, both sends and goes with his disciples. And at this point, Judas is no longer one of them. So Christ is sending 11 disciples with the good news of his resurrection and the salvation that awaits all the elect. Likewise, Joseph is sending his 11 brothers with the good news of his life and the salvation that awaits the family. Correspondence with escalation. 
As he sends them away to tell the rest of the family, Joseph assures them that when they return, he would have a place prepared for them where they could dwell close to him. He says in verse 10, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. In the same way, Christ has assured us that when he returns, we will be forever in his presence that he is preparing a place for us. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. For where I am, there you may be also. Joseph prepared a place for them in the land of Egypt, but Christ prepares a place for us in the new heavens and the new earth where God himself will dwell in the midst of his people. In addition to preparing a place for them to live, Joseph encourages them to make haste because the famine will continue, but he assures them that he will provide for all their needs. He says in verse 11, There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Well, Joseph can provide bread for them and grazing for their livestock, but Christ provides so much more than that for his people. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Not just bread, but all your need. He provides our greatest needs, spiritual life and salvation. Luke 12, Jesus says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not just bread. He gives us the kingdom. He's pleased to give us the kingdom. Not just a corner in the land of Egypt, but the entirety of the new creation is given to the children of God as our inheritance. And in looking forward to that, we must let go of and leave behind the things of this world. Joseph, speaking with the permission, blessing, and authority of Pharaoh, tells his brothers in verse 20, also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. They don't need to bring all their household goods with them, for they will be provided with all that they need. In the same way, as we anticipate Christ's return and our union with him and our entrance into the everlasting kingdom, we need not be concerned with the things of this world, houses, money, and possessions. We won't take those with us into the new creation. They will be replaced with new and better in the kingdom. And for that reason, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus explained that if you treasure the things on this earth, then your your heart is fixed on them. But if you fix your heart on the Lord and on the things of the kingdom, then you will have treasure in heaven. 
He says in Luke 12, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old and treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So just as Joseph exhorted his brothers not to be attached to their earthly possessions, we have a similar exhortation from Christ to set our hearts on the things of the kingdom rather than the things of this earth. Joseph exhorted his brothers in this way because they were to be given the best that the land of Egypt had to offer. It says in verse 18, Bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. This was repeated again in verse 20, as we've just seen. But this is to say that the the goodness of the land will be given to them. If you think back to the early chapters of Genesis, God had declared his creation to be very good. That's the same Hebrew word that's used here in Genesis 45 when it speaks of the best or the very goodness of the land. In Genesis 2, God took that very good creation and planted a garden. He filled it with the best plants, the best trees that were good for food, and he put Adam in the midst of it. But because of his sin, Adam is exiled from the garden, from its goodness, and from the presence of God in it. The promise of the Messiah is that he would undo the curse, that he would return us to the presence of God and obtain the reward of the goodness of God's creation for us. Well, Christ has done this. He has obtained the reward, and he has given it to us by way of promise In the new heavens and the new earth, we're told that there is a garden in the midst of the city, a garden that contains the tree of life, the best of the goodness of God's creation, and that God is in the midst of it. Joseph's promise of the best of the land of Egypt is but a shadow of the promise of the best of the new creation that Christ has made to his people. I've mentioned this one before in a previous sermon, but as Joseph is sending his brothers back for the rest of the family, he clothes them. They had previously, if you'll remember, torn their garments and their their grief and their their anguish over uh, Benjamin being in danger because of the cup in his sack. But now Joseph provides for them new garments. In verse 22, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. Well, this is a picture of what Christ does for those who trust in him. He clothes them in his righteousness. Once again, the prophet Zechariah speaks to this. He has a vision of the high priest standing before the Lord, but clothed in filthy garments. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with rich robes. The changing of the clothes is symbolic of our sins being removed and Christ's righteousness applied to us. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 Joseph, in providing new garments for his brothers, is providing a picture for us of what Christ does as he removes our sin from us and clothes us in his righteousness. And as Joseph's brothers leave on their journey, he gives them one last exhortation in verse 24. 
So he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Now they had been troubled in his presence when he first revealed himself. And as they journeyed back to the land of Canaan, he doesn't want them to begin to doubt his goodness toward him, to, to, to begin to doubt what his intentions are and instead begin to worry and fear his wrath. So he gives them this assurance. They have no reason to doubt. He encourages them not to be troubled with fear and anxiety. In the same way, we are exhorted to perseverance and given assurance of our salvation in Christ. Chapter 17 of our confession is titled, Of the Perseverance of the Saints. Chapter 18 is then titled, Of the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. See, these two things, perseverance and assurance, go together. The one follows after the other. God's elect need not fear that He will change His mind concerning them. He has promised, Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Our assurance is not based on our worthiness or our works, but on the unchanging mercy of God. Romans 8.38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it's possible. It's possible that that someone who is not truly saved can deceive themselves into thinking that they are. But it is God's intention that His children be assured of His grace toward them, that our salvation is secure. Hebrews 6, 17 says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, that is the unchanging character of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If you belong to Christ, He has promised Your salvation is secure in His hands. He will preserve you into the coming of the kingdom. John 6.40, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Just as Joseph assured his brothers that he was not going to change his mind by the time they got back to Egypt, So Christ has given us assurance that our salvation is secure. His mercy is unchanging. His election will stand. The story of Joseph pictures for us the great deliverance of God that He has worked for us in Christ, sending His beloved Son to secure our salvation and restore our fellowship with Him. So finally, I want to draw your attention to the response of Jacob as his sons bring him this wonderful news that his son Joseph is alive. And this is, again, an incredible picture of our salvation. 
If Joseph has foreshadowed Christ in the work of redemption and deliverance, then Jacob foreshadows all those who hear the gospel and respond in faith. Notice that when his sons first tell him the glad news, he responds with disbelief in verse 26. And they told him, saying, Joseph is alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. When it says his heart stood still, it means he was powerless. That's how that word is translated in other passages. He was powerless to respond because of his unbelief. This is a picture of a man who hears the good news of Christ, but apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, because his heart is spiritually dead, he cannot respond to the good news with faith, but he remains in unbelief. But when they tell him the words of Joseph, there's a different response. In verse 27, but when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. His spirit was made alive, and he believed the word. What a wonderful picture of the salvation of a sinner. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Always in the scripture, the sinner is described as having a dead heart of unbelief. But when the Spirit makes us alive, the preaching of the Word of God comes to us and faith follows. Speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, God says of the work of salvation, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. God will do it. God must do it. In the deadness of our hearts, we're powerless to respond in faith to the good news. But when God makes us alive together with Christ, then we respond with faith and repentance, and we become partakers of all the good things that God has promised to those who are in Christ Jesus. When we read a chapter like this here in Genesis 45, we should look to see ourselves as the hero of the story Rather, we should look to see Christ as the hero and ourselves as the poor, wretched sinners in need of the saving work of a Redeemer. Rather than identifying ourselves with Joseph as those who are innocent and must forgive the offenders, rather we should see ourselves as those in need of forgiveness who have offended the thrice holy God and the only innocent man who ever lived. We're not Joseph Joseph is a picture of Christ, the Redeemer, the great Deliverer. We're more like Jacob, stuck in unbelief with dead hearts, dependent on the Spirit to revive us and bring life to our dead spirits so that we might believe the word that is preached to us. Notice that their father is called by his old name, Jacob, in verses 25 and 27 when he had a dead heart of unbelief. But when he believed... He is then called Israel in verse 28. So those who believe in Christ, who is the true Israel, are joined to him by faith and become part of the Israel of God, as Paul calls us in Galatians 6. 
in so many details. In this one chapter in Genesis, we see that the story of Joseph pictures for us the deliverance that God has worked for us in Christ as he sends his beloved son to secure our salvation, restore our fellowship with him. And then when we come to faith, we can say with Jacob in verse 28, it is enough. Christ, my Savior, is alive. My desire is to see him as greater than life itself, for he is my all in all. Let's pray.